Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, my wife and I often talk about what we call COVID keeps and COVID, I guess it's kind of crass, COVID kills. The things that COVID took away and the things that COVID gave us that are better. Uh, COVID keeps, though, are things that are better as a result of COVID. And you say, man, there's nothing that's good as a result of that. And the reality is there are some things that I look at and say, man, I'm glad that stuck. Uh, for example, like being able to, uh, to add your name to a restaurant's waiting list, you know, via text message or something like that. The, the, fact that, the fact that I can put my name on the list at Cracker Barrel and I don't have to be in that store with everybody else, man, that's a, that's a, that's a COVID keep. I'm, I'm excited about that. Just if you didn't know that, you can add yourself to Cracker Barrel's wait list ahead of time. So uh, insider secret there, go get you some uh, Saturday fr- uh, fried chicken or whatever, Sunday fried chicken. You don't have to be in the restaurant to be on the wait list. One of the things I'm not a fan of that's been a COVID keep uh, is that in Georgia, and it may be this way in other states, I'm unfamiliar, but in Georgia they have what are called virtual driving tests now. So what this means is that your 16-year-old now, when they go down to the DMV, they don't actually have a, like when I went to get my license, there was a state trooper sitting in the front seat with me. Like, like I was terrified into making sure I did that right because dude was sitting right there like, like that was a real state trooper. And, and now mom or dad sit in the car with the kid. And what they do is they rig up a, a two-way camera and this two-way camera is, allows the examiner to sit in the comfort of their office and watch how the kid's driving while mom and dad have to ride in the car with them. And I know they started it to keep everybody socially distanced. I understand that the passenger seat's not six feet away. I get that. And now they just do it to preserve the life expectancy of driving examiners. (laughs) Grant, I don't want that job. Uh, and I would hope that it pays well, but, but I would not have wanted that job. Look at this video. This is a 63-year-old woman's driving test uh, that, uh, that, that made the news uh, not too long ago. She's 63. I guess she just now figured it out. She's doing a great job. Uh, oh, okay, lost some points there. Some of you are like, my wife hits the curb like that all the time. Whoop! Whoo! As a general rule, if you have to be extracted from the car by the fire department after your driving test, it probably means that you're not getting your driver's license that day. She actually had to be transported to the hospital. She had some injuries that had to be taken care of at the hospital. And I'm sure the driving examiner in the car with her probably had their fair share of injuries too. Thankfully, this was in Argentina, so even if she did get her license, you probably won't be encountering her on the road anytime soon. Uh, You might have a wreck in their driving test, just 
just a transparent moment in a large room. Anybody want to say, yeah, pastor, I wrecked my driving test. Nobody. Somebody did. You're just not being, you're okay. Of course, we know getting behind the wheel of a car is a great place to work on our spiritual journey. I was thinking about this, that, that sitting in traffic helps us to develop patience. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing develops patience like waiting in that long line of, of traffic. Being cut off by a negligent driver helps us to develop kindness. Uh, a, a, a long ride with screaming kids in the back seat helps you to develop the urge to not be a murderer. Uh, uh, and a, a long drive to our favorite destination can certainly be a parable of our Christian journey, fraught with uh, lots of excitement and lots of uh, pauses along the way. And of course, a well-executed U-turn teaches us something about repentance. As we get into this third chapter of Jeremiah, I want us to allow the image of a U-turn to help inform us as God challenges his people in that regard. God's people in Jeremiah have been going the wrong direction for a long time. And, and you know that there comes a point when you're going the wrong direction that the only thing you can do when you're going the wrong way is to stop, turn around, and go the other way. As we work through this book, I wanna do my best to pick passages that help us to focus on the big idea, so I'm not gonna read all of Jeremiah. It'll take us a long time to read the whole book from this pulpit, but I'm gonna pick passages that help us to focus on the big idea. But understand that even though I may read a certain passage, I'll be drawing on the larger context during these sermons in Jeremiah. So today, we're going to be actually considering a large portion of chapters 3 and 4, but our reading is going to be just a little bit more narrow. So if you've got your Bible open today to Jeremiah chapter 3, our reading is going to be from verses 6 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's word in honor of his word. Jeremiah chapter three, beginning there in verse six. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. But she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord." And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. Father, I thank you for these words as hard as they may be for us to hear Lord, I thank you for your compassion that you show towards your people. We pray, Father, that you will help us to keep our list of sins brief and our commitment to you lengthy. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, be seated. 
You know, one of the helpful things the prophets do for us is every so often they offer us a road sign. Thinking about driving, those road signs are very helpful. They help us to know when we should turn and when we should not turn. They help us know when we shouldn't run over lampposts and when we should. If you read the Old Testament prophets, you're not alone if you ever encounter the text and you think to yourself, now when did this happen again? It's easy to get in there because these books are lengthy. They cover a long span of time to say, now help me understand this in the timeline. Where is this happening in the, the, the history here? Jeremiah is particularly challenging because it's not laid out for us in chronological order. So it's not like chapter three follows chapter two in a chronology. That's not how this works. Rather, Jeremiah is a collection of his sermons. It's a collection of things that he has written. It's things collected over the course of his life and sort of arranged thematically rather than in order. And so in chapter three, we actually get one of those signposts that helps us to understand when this is taking place. And what we're told is that here in chapter three, that this particular message, this particular sermon, these particular words of Jeremiah were actually recorded or preached during the reign of King Josiah of Judah. Now, I understand that for most of us in New Testament Christianity, it's a little fuzzy, the kings. Uh, we, we read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and we do our best to try to keep it together, but it's easy to lose sight of when things are happening and where things are happening and, and all those sort of things. And so it's good for us to refresh our memories every once in a while. And to help us, we need to go all the way back to King David. King David was, of course, one of the, the righteous king in Israel, his son Solomon, and he reigned over the golden age of Israel. The nation expanded, experienced great prosperity under Solomon's reign. The temple was built, but that prosperity that they began to experience would not last past Solomon's generation. Because after Solomon passed away, civil war would break out and the nation of Israel would be divided into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. And these kingdoms were ruled over by various kings. Some of the kings tried to follow the Lord. They feared God. They sought to lead the people to fear God. But a majority of the kings rejected the Lord. And instead of pursuing God, they pursued idolatry, which is what God is saying about them when he compares them to a, a faithless wife, a faithless spouse. He's talking about their, their desire to pursue idolatry. Uh, and even when you had a God-fearing king that tried to make meaningful reforms, the problem is, is that top-down reforms don't work very well. I mean, we see that. I mean, if a, if a government official came out today and said, you know what, we want everybody in the country to start wearing a mask again. You know how that would go. I mean, there'd be some who say, yes, sir, but then there'd be others who are like, no, I don't know that I'm going to listen to what he says this time. Because top-down reforms don't work very well. Things happen from the bottom up, not from the top down. And so even when you had a king that was trying to make significant, meaningful reforms, the people's hearts were still inclined towards idolatry, even if the king was trying to do the right thing. Speaking particularly of Josiah, Josiah was a decent, God-fearing king. He's one of the few that, that did everything he could to try to change the nation. He made all kinds of meaningful reforms during his reign from 640 to 609 before Christ. Now, don't forget you count backwards before Christ. And so we, our numbers are skewed when we start going backwards. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been in exile, destroyed for almost a century by the time Josiah became king of Judah. Israel did not exist anymore as a kingdom 
The only kingdom that was around at that time, as far as the original two go, is Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel was conquered in 721. And the prophets were clear during that time. So many prophets speak during that ministry. But the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel was a direct result of them as a nation turning their back on God. Looking to the past, Jeremiah again here emphasizes this marriage analogy. He compares Israel to an unfaithful spouse. And even after given many opportunities to repent and truly follow the Lord, Israel did not. And there came a point when they truly had exhausted the patience of the Lord. And the Lord sent the Assyrians to be the judgment against the nation of Israel. And the Lord even likens that to the failing of a marriage. He says it here in Jeremiah 3 verse 8. He says, she saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. That's the analogy that Jeremiah is given here, that when in 721, when Assyria destroyed Israel, God says, that was my divorce decree. I am no longer married to this nation. Now, you would have thought that if you had seen the northern kingdom be vanquished by a foreign power, that you would have thought that that would have provoked Judah, the southern kingdom, to seek the Lord. Oh, look what happened to them. We don't want to do what happened to them. We don't want, to, we don't want that to be our experience. But that's not what happened because he goes on here in verse 8. He gets to the second part. He says, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but then she too went and played the whore. Instead of doing what was right and and learning from Israel's experience, Judah said, oh, we don't have anything to worry about. God spared us from the Assyrians. We can go do whatever we want to do. But it turns out that Judah was actually emboldened in her idolatry. She was emboldened in her pursuit of false God. It was, she was emboldened to go in a different direction because Judah had something that Israel didn't have. Judah had Jerusalem. Judah had Solomon's temple. Jeremiah will actually speak to this later on in chapter seven. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But Israel had no such sacred site. They didn't have Jerusalem. They didn't have the temple. Judah believed that the presence of the temple was like a spiritual good luck charm to them. We got the temple. This is where God lives. As long as, as, long as God lives here, nobody's going to touch us. It was, we've got God, and so therefore we can't be touched. But in fact, the Lord even says of Judah, she did not return to me with, whole heart, with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. The Lord who knows the heart knows that any repentance that took place in Judah was absolutely fake. And for that reason, their offenses were more odious than Israel's because they took on the veil of religious devotion, but were ultimately devoted to those worthless, bankrupt idols of the nations. As Jeremiah talks about in chapter two, broken cisterns that hold no water. To hopefully stir up the conscience of Judah, God tells Jeremiah to preach to a nation that doesn't exist. Look at verse 12. He says, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. In their exile, God still calls out to the nation of Israel. All they had to do was return, and the Lord promised grace. Instead of anger, God promised mercy. At the same time, though, God was looking for true repentance, not the pretentious repentance of Judah. 
true repentance. Well, what exactly does true repentance look like? He goes on in verse three to say that they have to acknowledge their guilt, that they had rebelled against the Lord and that they had not obeyed his voice. Because true repentance, listen, is more than just feeling bad about your sin. True repentance is more than just feeling bad about the sin that you have committed. True repentance requires an acknowledgement of the spiritual reality of our sin. Gosh, I feel bad about that. No, it requires us to recognize that, that we have transgressed against the holy God. It's more than just feeling bad. When you look at all of chapter three and four, you notice this word return appears frequently in these verses. It's, it's not uncommon in the Old Testament. It appears more than a thousand times in the Old Testament. Nine of the times that this word return is used, it's used in one chapter here, Jeremiah chapter three, and it's this Old Testament word for repent or return. It's the U-turn. When you are going one direction, you stop and you go the other direction. You go the opposite direction from where you are headed. The nation was headed in one direction and God said, I want you to turn and come back to me. The direction you're going is catastrophic. Stop going that way and come back to me. It was God's call to the people to return to their vows, to abandon their infidelity, and to come home. I love the fact, it's incredible to me, that God is telling Jeremiah to preach in the direction of where Israel used to be. He says, Jeremiah's sermon is to, is to preach to the vanquished northern kingdom, and it shows us the heart of our God. Uh, preach to the north. Well, nothing's in the north. Turn and face the north as an object le lesson to the people of Judah. Preach to a nation that isn't there. Call them back from where they are. Call them back from their exile. Call them back to faithfulness. Even to a nation that isn't there, God has these concerns. He is worried about their spiritual condition. And we see God's heart in this. It's not capricious or harsh as God is often accused of in the Old Testament. It's an image of a desire for a right relationship that is defined and characterized by faithfulness. But as much as God pleads with the people through the prophets, they do not return, they continue in their unfaithfulness, and their adultery doesn't cease. And you'd think Judah, watching all that unfold, would say, we're not going to go that pathway. But Judah, according to the Lord here, is following right along in her sister's footsteps. And we know the history of what will ultimately happen. The nation of Babylon is rising and that new world power will bring the same judgment to Judah that Assyria brought to Israel. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther lit the fires of the Protestant Reformation when he nailed his 95 thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the very first of his 95 thesis statements said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, from Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, some may hear that and find that to be a shocking statement, that, that as Christians, our whole life is to be marked and characterized by repentance. And, and for some, we say, oh, repentance is, is something that non-believers have to do. That's what non-believers do in order to be saved. That was Peter's invitation, after all, at the end of his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The church, the people listening say, what are we to do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Spirit. The response to the sermon that Peter preached was a response of repentance. He was preaching to non-believers. We as believers say, we don't have to worry about that repentance thing. That's just for non-Christians who want to give their life to Jesus. But repentance is more than just an act that we undertake at conversion. It is a posture that we assume toward life. And the prophet Jeremiah here reminds us of why we as believers need to develop a posture of repentance. Why? One of the reasons is that we tend to compare ourselves to others. I know that's shocking, but we do. We tend to evaluate ourselves, not in a helpful way, not in like, you know, that faithful man wants me to be a faithful man. We, not like that, but we compare ourselves in unhelpful ways. Judah compared herself to Israel. Well, we're not as bad as they are. We're not as bad as they were. They saw Israel's rebellion. They even saw Israel's fall. But since Judah was spared, then they must be superior. They're not having the same problems. But they weren't. Jeremiah is very clear that Judah was, in many ways, even more guilty than Israel. Well, don't we do that? We look at other people's issues and we think, at least I'm not that bad. At least I don't have that sin issue. At least I don't struggle like that. At least I'm not as bad as they are. At least I'm not like that tax collector, a sinner. Reminds me of the two men who were camping in the woods when a large bear started checking out their tent. One of the men, as they frantically figure out what to do, one of the men starts taking the time to put his shoes on. The other man says, what are you doing? There's no way you're gonna outrun the bear. The man says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. I'm not as bad as you are. I'm not as bad off as you are. My sin's nothing like your sin. And as long as, as long as there's people worse than me, and I don't have anything to worry about. The problem with that is that we're measuring by the wrong standard. We're measuring by the standard of others and not by the perfect standard of righteousness. Listen to me. Other people are not the standard that we compare ourselves to. The standard that we compare ourselves to is God's standard. And when we look at God's standard, it doesn't matter if you're Israel, if you're Judah, or anybody else, you don't hit the mark. If you're using other people as a metric about how good or bad you're doing from a spiritual standpoint, you're already losing because there's nobody else that meets a mark that you can look at. We compare ourselves to others, which is why we need to live in a posture of repentance. Secondly, our lack of repentance, our our willingness to hold on to sin and manage sin, it brings about exasperation to God. What do I mean? Well, here in Jeremiah, God uses two metaphors with his people. He speaks as a husband who is betrayed by an adulterous wife. Look at Jeremiah 3, 19. I said, how long would I set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations? I thought that you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. So we know that God speaks as as a husband betrayed, but here God speaks also as a loving father. Now it's hard for us to reconcile that in our minds. How can God speak to this nation as both a, a rejected spouse and a loving father. How can he have both of those feelings at the same time? And that's what's so incredible about this. There is this combination of fatherhood and marriage images that serves to illustrate this mysterious combination of how God has both compassion towards us and disgust with us as he relates to us as sinful people. 
When we think about our relationship to God in the new covenant, it's even more difficult for us to reconcile. We have been adopted as children into the family. We are part of the bride of Christ as the church. We have been filled with his spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And you say, man, with those with those things on the resume, we ought to be in pretty good shape. We're adopted, we're, we're sons and daughters of the king, we're part of the bride in the church, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, yet how many of us, if we're honest, we still recognize that we try to manage our sin. We try to just keep it under control instead of constantly striving to kill the sin in our lives. That dichotomy brings up exasperation in the mind of God. Thirdly, the believer's repentance should be a blessing, not just to us, but to all nations. Over to chapter four of Jeremiah. Jeremiah four, verse one, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord to me. If, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. You know, what you see here is God's faithfulness to his word because God promised a long, long time ago that he would bless the nations through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. God wanted to bless the nations through Israel. But listen, when you look at the mess that Israel and Judah got in, they were in no position to bless anybody. They were in no position to bless the nations. Instead of introducing the nations to the holiness and righteousness of the one true God, they turned their back on the one true God and went after the gods of the nations. How can you bring the blessings of holiness and righteousness of God to a people when you've abandoned the one who is holy and righteous and you've turned to false gods to dead idols who are worthless? They weren't in position to bless the nations. Well, it isn't hard to understand how a healthy, penitent church today would be a blessing to the nations. Because if the church today is growing in faith, walking in light, living in a posture of repentance, avoiding the darkness of sin, then it's certainly easy to understand how the church can make a bigger impact on the nations. But when the church is busy squashing sinful scandals and dealing with internal strife, then our focus is not on blessing the nations through the gospel, but our focus is in trying to keep the wills on our own bus. A church that is spiritually healthy is a missionary church that is mindful of the nations. One thing we understand though today is that repentance, it's not a popular idea today. Why? Because repentance demands that we acknowledge our sinfulness. It requires that we acknowledge our sinfulness. Too many sermons and too many teachers today have reduced the gospel down to a glorified self-help seminar. And while the Bible affirms over and over again, we are wretched sinners without an ounce of righteousness, the modern mindset says we're generally okay. We're just good, decent individuals who need a little self-esteem boost from time to time. This is the self-help movement of today that's not recognizing the, the fallacy of our spiritual condition, but is simply trying to, to get us a boost, to help us feel better about ourselves. 
But the gospel, without a call to repentance, provides that. It provides that self-help boost. It provides that feel-good-ism. The gospel has to have a call of repentance attached to it. Folks, we have a problem today because we don't understand repentance. We think repentance is like behavior modification. Just be good. If you'll just be good, you'll... You'll understand repentance. But repentance goes deeper than our behavior because our behavior is an external manifestation. You can go into a a little kid's classroom and you can see this. Those little children aren't following Jesus yet. They're not old enough to follow Jesus. But that teacher's working hard to get them to modify their behavior, trying to get those children to do right, even though their insides haven't been taken over by the Holy Spirit. There is no internal change. We're just trying to modify their behavior to survive the day because the teacher doesn't want to be a murderer by the end of the day. Just trying to modify their behavior. But repentance goes deeper than our behavior. We fill our kids' minds with what we call character education. In our public schools, the the chaplain on the sideline is not called a chaplain anymore. He's called what? He's a character coach. He's trying to build character. You can't build character apart from the gospel. You can't build character apart from a true call to repentance. We try to teach people rules and regulations to restrain their behavior, but the whole time we're missing the point, we don't have a behavior problem, we have a heart problem. We have bad behaviors because we've got bad hearts. And we've got to get to the heart problem, which is a gospel problem and a repentance problem. Repentance is not about building good character. Jesus said in Luke chapter three, verse eight, that we're to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Jesus is telling us that repentance is not the action. Repentance is the heart condition that gives birth to the action. Repentance is not about forcing good behavior. Repentance is about recognizing our sin, acknowledging our sin before a holy God and making a U-turn from that sin. Not managing it, not rationalizing, not trying to mask it with good attitudes and good behavior. Repentance isn't birthed by secular character education and training. Repentance is birthed out of a recognition of our flawed character and our unavoidable bent towards all things sinful. There are some of us sitting in church today who are doing everything in our power to behave But if you're honest and you look at your heart, you know that your heart is just inclined to sin today as it ever was. You've managed to keep the wheels on the pavement. But if you're honest, you don't hate your sin. You're holding it all together. Everything looks good. But you know that at the first sign of trouble, at the first crisis, when restraint is lost, you'll be drowning neck deep in a pit of sin and rebellion that you cannot get out of. I firmly believe that the prophet Jeremiah's call to return or repent is just as applicable to us today as it was to the wayward children of God 3,000 years ago. We've got to stop trying to be good and just acknowledge, apart from Christ, we're not good. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing good. And when we recognize that we are not good apart from Christ, then we recognize that we have an undeniable need for a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are those in this room today 
who, if they're honest, are simply still trying to manage their sin. And if you go deeper, you recognize that I manage it, but I don't really hate it. You think you're a pretty decent person. But I'm warning you that if that's you, that you are in a perilous spiritual predicament. The scriptures teach us that God is patient with us, but his patience has one purpose, which is to lead us to repentance. Romans chapter two, verse four says, do you presume upon the riches of kindness, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you are continuing in sin and continuing in your impenitent heart, that means your unrepentant, unturned heart. You may be behaving, but if you look at your heart, you know you're still inclined towards evil. You are doing what Paul says here. You are stirring, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's judgment. In physics, we call that potential energy. And God's judgment is rising higher and higher and higher. And one day it will be released upon you in an absolute terror of kinetic injury. That is the wrath of God. Yet extended to you today is the offer that God's wrath against you has already been poured out. It's been poured out on the Lamb of God. His name is Jesus. And on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he took the wrath that we were due. He paid the price for the sin that we've committed. He took our wrath. And if you will return, repent, and place your faith in Jesus alone, that wrath is spared. I know that there are those in this room this morning who continue in their sin and rebellion. And I cannot for the life of me fathom why anyone would remain in that condition knowing the grace of God which has been extended again and again and again. And then there are perhaps those here today who truly do hate their sin. But for whatever reason, they still like to toy with it. It reminds me of those cat videos that surface from time to time. I don't like cats, but I like watching cats do dumb things and the internet's full of videos of cats doing just that. And what you always have is some unsuspecting feline that's playing with something that he's not supposed to. And what invariably happens is that cat plays with that thing that he's not supposed to play with and then suddenly there's chaos that's unfolding. The, the thing falls off, other things happen. There's damage, there's destruction. With one swipe of the paw, pandemonium, pandemonium unfolds. Too many of us treat sin the same way. We know we may gain some temporary satisfaction, but at what cost? We find in that case that our life has got more than we care to think about of those broken cisterns from last week. Those tanks of water designed to do one thing that don't even succeed in that. Yet still extended to us is the never-ending fountain of living water that refreshes our life, that takes care of our needs, why in the world would we turn our back on living water instead to splash around in a mud puddle? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the day when temptations no longer assail me. I'm looking forward to the day when I no longer have to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There will be a day that we no longer have to pray that. But in the meantime, may we consistently 
and faithfully pray just that. Not just pray it though, but be sure to put that prayer into action. In order for me to do that, I must develop a posture of repentance. Would you pray with me, please? Father, for the prophet's words, we are grateful. They speak to a time and place that is so historically far away from us, but so spiritually near and dear to where we are today. We pray that you will help us as your followers to maintain a posture of repentance, that we would look constantly at our own hearts and see if there are things within us that distract us from you. If there are sins that we toy with, if there were actions that we take, if there are words that we speak, if there are places that we go, if there's habits that we have, if there's relationships that are damaged, that we would constantly look into our own heart at those things and seek to turn from those things and keep our eyes fixed faithfully and firmly on you. Father, I pray today that if there's any under the sound of my voice who have not heeded that call to repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that today that they would recognize the amazing gift that's been extended to them through the cross. That Christ took the wrath of God upon him as you poured your wrath out on sin, paid the penalty for us, paid the price that we owed, and instead offers to us eternal life and the privilege to drink from the fountain of living water. If there's any here today, Father, who've not put their faith and trust in you, and I pray today, God, would be a day of salvation. Move in their hearts, call them out, lead them to faith and trust in you today. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.